For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, good morning, church. It's been good to see you all again this morning. Um, what, a, what a great uh, weekend and and thank you, uh, all of you who served over at Lockmire Elementary and, and loved Jesus in this way. And others of us, uh, we were celebrating the life of Lynn Gorris and uh, just having a great uh, morning uh, remembering her. And, and in, in, I think maybe one of the most moving times in the funeral at the end, as we were having eulogies, uh, a lady came up and who was her house cleaner for the previous year. And in that last year of her life, Lynn led her housekeeper to Christ. And uh, so started asking her, you know, would you read the Bible for me? You know, Lynn's 90 years old, you know, and, and uh, she said, I'd never read the Bible before. And I told her no. And it was just an incredible testimony. And, and we heard another one with Dave. And, you know, I think it's a reminder to all of us that there are people in our lives that God wants us to continue to go to, to pursue to go yet again. I was, I was at the hospital with Dave and, and um, Frida that, that afternoon when Dave, or their brother, had been admitted, and they told me how he was so hard. And uh, I said, well, why don't you go and talk to him? And he said, we've said everything. I, don't know, I remember Dave saying, I wouldn't know what to say. We've said everything. Dave, I think I saw Dave earlier. He's here somewhere. And uh, you remember, Dave, I mean, you, me, and Frida, we held hands and we prayed and we claimed the promise in First Peter that, that we don't have to think about and wonder about what we're going to say. God will give us the words to say. I never knew, uh, I know David said, uh, okay, I'm going to go uh, one more time. And he did. And, and now to hear the words that actually God gave you, Dave, that was just awesome. You know, uh, I know that, you know, that was a God thing, right? I mean, that's just, that was God answering our prayers and Frida's prayers for her brother, and it's just neat to see. What a, what a great time. You know, um, also, before we jump into the, the message, I want to say a big thank you. Uh, Ted, stand up, Ted Unser. Uh, he has been, uh, they, he and, and Jamie and the family have been here for eight years. Ted has been on staff as our facilities director for about five or six years, and he is doing the unpardonable. I don't like it. But he is, uh, but it's okay, I get it. He's moving actually up towards my sisters. He and his family, they're moving to Tennessee, uh, maybe next weekend or here in the next week or two. And uh, so Ted, thank you. Uh, Ted has, church, Ted has saved our church. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say tens of thousands of dollars uh, because his, he has these skills that he has used to repair things that we always hired out to other people. and. Uh, it, it's just been a real blessing to our church, and he's just served our church with a cheerful spirit and a smile and a willingness to serve, and he's been a great, 
uh, staff member for our church. So Ted, thank you for the last five, six years of your service, and we're going to miss you uh, for, for being here. So, yeah, absolutely. So some more good news. Uh, we have a, a great group of children who come on Sunday nights to Voyagers. And the good news is that our first and second grade boys group is so large, one of you men now have the privilege of helping us with those first or second graders. Isn't that great news? Amen, Amen. that's right. So guys, uh, please see Lauren. Lauren, would you stand up and wave at people? Uh, There's an assistant needed. Dan, her husband, works with that, I think, with that age group. And he needs some help because I think you got about 10, 12 boys, and that's too many for one guy, right? So he needs a, a helper in there. And uh, so if you would come and see them, even, here's your deal. You don't have to commit yet. You can try it before you buy it, okay? Just go and try it. And if it doesn't work, that means it's not for you and we'll get somebody else. But if you'd see them, we, we would appreciate it. Next week, we're going to get back to the Old Testament. We're going to start uh, in Genesis chapter 1. And for uh, much of the rest of the ministry year, we'll be in the book of Genesis. We might make it to Nehemiah. I'm not sure yet. Uh, but this morning is a special day. This is Reformation Sunday. Uh, we are a Reformed church. And uh, we, we love this Sunday because it's the, it's the Sunday before the anniversary of what is considered the beginning of the Reformation. Uh, 503 years ago this week, Martin Luther uh, off the, the Reformation by penning his 95 uh, theses and nailing it to the uh, doors of the Wittenberg church, and he literally turned the world upside down. Uh, for Luther, this journey uh, to, to this time began actually about 12 years earlier, in 1505, uh, he, he had had an experience, a very vivid experience, life-changing experience with God, and uh, he joined a monastery and committed his life to becoming a priest and a servant of God's church, and so uh, he became uh, an Augustinian monk, and he was ordained as a, a Roman Catholic priest, but his soul was constantly in torment over the fear uh, for his salvation and for his eternal life. The, the abbot of that monastery was a man by the name of Johann Staupitz, and he, he saw the, the potential in uh, Luther, and he saw how troubled he was, so he thought that it would be beneficial to Luther to send him to Rome so that he could see the grandeur of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. In 1510, uh, Luther goes to Rome, and it did not have the effect that the abbot had intended when he got to Rome. Uh, Luther was even more upset. He was more appalled as he saw the immorality of the priests that were in Rome. He saw the, the greed and the materialism of the cardinals. He saw such vivid examples of, of works righteousness and people having to work to earn their salvation. And, and it did not calm him down at all. Um, and so the defining moment of the Reformation came there in a defining moment for him came uh, in 1517 when the Pope began to sell indulgences for the construction, to raise money for the construction of what we now know as St. Peter's uh, Cathedral and the Basilica. An indulgence was a certificate that you could buy. If you gave a, a certain amount of money, 
the, the salesman, the, the Catholic salesman, would give you a certificate, which meant that either your loved one would immediately leave purgatory and get to go to heaven, or if you bought it for yourself because you didn't care about your family members, when you died, you got to skip purgatory and go immediately to heaven. This is something that the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, still sells today. Um, and so Luther, when he saw this, was just convinced that the Pope did not know what was going on in his name out in the, the places away from Rome. And so the 95 Thesis was actually his attempt to call the church back to you know, the idea that we, we can't buy our way into heaven and we can't work our way into heaven. Of course, he was wrong. This was all being done under the approval of the Pope. And so he was declared a heretic and, and, and now we're off the races. The, the defining moment though for Luther and what led to this change between that trip in Rome and to Rome in 1510 and the nailing of the theses in, in 1517 was in 1515 and 1516, he had received his doctorate in theology. He was teaching in the, the local university in Wittenberg. In 1515, he taught through the book of Romans. And in 1516, he taught through the book of Galatians. And when teaching through those two books, he realized that all of his theological training was clashing with what the Word of God actually says. And thankfully, he, he sided with the Word of God. And he became a Christian. He became a believer. He says, at that time, and true peace entered his life. He would, he would later write, by the way, this is who Martin Luther, what he looked like, I guess, a painting that was done, and a good German man, right? And uh, he would write about the book of Galatians. He says, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am as it were in wedlock. It is my Catherine. And he's talking, Catherine was the name of his wife. He loved this book and, and what it did for him. So as Reformed churches, we look back uh, in gratitude to men such as Luther and Calvin and Knox and Melanchthon and others. We don't always highlight this every year. Some churches do, but I think it's been probably five years or more since we have, and I wanted to do that this morning to just kind of point out how much we owe to Luther and these men and the essential truths that they recaptured for the, truth, for the church. The, these essential truths are, are, are kind of the bedrock of a Reformed church like ours, and it was the bedrock of the Reformation. They were called the five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola deo gloria. The word sola means alone or only. So in other words, the, the first premise, the first essential truth of the Reformation was scripture alone. And so as Luther would debate in the upcoming years against uh, Roman Catholic uh, defenders, and as he was being put on trial for heresy, they would quote from church traditions and decrees that had been made over the last centuries, and to everything that they would say, Luther would just quote Scripture. <laughs> sola Scriptura, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. These principles, the bedrock principles of the Reformation are also who we are as a church. And since our annual theme is, uh, you know, by faith, 
uh, I thought I would pick one of those solas, right? Sola fide. And we're going to come to a passage in Galatians and look at it this morning, since this was Luther's favorite epistle. And this passage in the book of Galatians is a crucial passage as it shows us how important sola fide really is. Now, as we jump into this passage in the middle of a book, I don't normally like to do that um, because you don't really know the context. So let's make sure we have the context right before we jump in and dig into the passage. Um, You know, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they had been sent out as missionaries. In their first missionary journey, they leave Antioch of Syria and modern day Syria, and they go to Asia Minor, the area of Galatia, and they begin planting churches. This occurs in 46 to 47 AD. And they begin to plant all these different churches in that region of the world known as Galatia. And soon after them came Jewish uh, converts or Jewish uh, religious teachers who came in behind them and began to to teach uh, false uh, truths. They were false teachers. They began to attack things that that, uh, Paul had set up and had been teaching in these churches. And he, and he couldn't ignore their threat. Uh, what these Judaizers, they were called Judaizers, and, and they would maybe claim to follow Christ, but they were also adding to the gospel. And what they ended up doing is, they were, they, what they were trying to do, essentially, is they, they were trying to destroy the gospel's attractiveness by creating division in the church. So they attacked the apostle Paul himself and his credentials and his credibility as an apostle. And they attacked the gospel message by, you know, uh, adding to or denying, actually, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You see a good example of what these Judaizers were teaching when Paul returned from this missionary journey and, and this began to occur. It began to upset the churches. And so a council was called in the city of Jerusalem and all the, the early church's apostles and elders gathered together. And, and you see the need for it in the very first verse of Acts 15. They're talking about the Judaizers. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom or according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they they were essentially attacking the gospel message and denying the sufficiency of Christ. And so these Galatian Christians, new converts, many of them Gentiles, but also many of them were Jews who were now in a state of confusion, he's addressing these attacks and this heresy. And in Galatians 5, he will actually say to them, to kind of summarize it, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So they were destroying the gospel's attractiveness and attacking the gospel message by denying the sufficiency of Christ, and they were weakening the gospel's power by stressing legalistic human works and righteousness. This threat of that works righteousness, of self-effort, of legalism, is what's in the crosshairs of our text this morning. That's the context. So let's get right into the curse of legalism and works righteousness. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. 
Now, now we often, in, in church world, we will often use words like legalism or works righteousness. And this can mean different things to different people. In just a minute, I'm gonna define what this word means. And we're gonna unpack this passage and see how it is foolish and it's actually a curse of the human condition to live this way. But before defining it, I thought, you know, a picture's you know, better than, a, what, a thousand words? Well, a video is even better. I want you to see a modern-day, living, breathing example of religious legalism. Watch this video. The idea of creating holy space is really an idea that people generally appreciate today. One of the prohibited activities on the Sabbath is something called carrying. The rabbis realized the difficulty in enjoying the Sabbath if you weren't allowed to carry outside of the house. And therefore they created a construct in which the area in which the Jews lived was enclosed first by a wall or a fence, and then eventually by a symbolic wall or fence, which was created by setting up two poles and a string on the top of the two poles. And that imaginary wall served to religiously enclose the neighborhood and to allow Jews to carry within that neighborhood. What's amazing is that in 1970, there were under 10 Arubs in all of North America. Now I would say there are over 200 Arubs. Yes, there is an Arub in Manhattan. The Arub that began in 1999 as a small community Arub on the Upper West Side is now the Arub that encloses almost all of Manhattan from 126th Street all the way down to the southern tip of Manhattan. Let's just get around that whole law of, you know, on the Sabbath of not carrying by creating this little uh, ribbon of string around the entire city. And now this is all our home and we can carry whatever we want to on the Sabbath day. And that's an example of religious legalism. But listen, it's been my experience that uh, all of us are pretty good at constructing our own Arubs. And oftentimes churches and groups construct our own form of the same thing. So what is legalism? R.C. Sproul says that it's the fundamental distortion or the fundamental distortion of legalism is the belief that one can earn one's way into the kingdom. Um, I would define legalism as the belief that one's status before God is contingent upon obedience to prescribed rules and regulations. And, and Paul, he pulls no punches here, right? He says that to do this is absolutely foolish. It is dangerous. It puts you under a curse. It's foolish to equate outward morality with inward faith. It's foolish because you can live a moral life on the outside, but the motives of your heart internally are legalistic. 
Uh, they, they aren't pure. They aren't holy. Your motive for obedience is skewed. You can obey the law and completely miss the spirit of the law. I mean, this was what the legalists did, like the Pharisees. They would tithe their herbs, but they would overlook, Jesus says, the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. And this is a foolish way to approach life. And the reason it's foolish, Paul says, is because it puts us back under the curse of perfect obedience to the law, a standard that none of us can abide by. None of us can fulfill it. It's foolish, it's impossible. You see, relative to our salvation, legalism does not bring redemption, it brings condemnation. He says in verse 10, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched, excuse me, back in chapter three, verse one, uh, it is verse 10, (laughs) our thing is there as well. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We're put under an impossible standard. It's impossible for us to perfectly obey it, right? Because it's not just a matter of obeying most of the law, it's obeying all of the law. And if you disobey the law in one place, you've disobeyed all of the law. It's an all or nothing deal. And so Paul is coming to him and saying, listen, these guys are telling you to come back under the law. This is foolish. You cannot even come into the kingdom of God by obeying the law. It's impossible. You're cursed if you even try to do this as an unbeliever. And and it's foolish to do this as a believer. For the believer, legalism works righteousness. It stymies our sanctification. It stymies our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. It thwarts our efforts to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the biggest offenses of legalism is that it marginalizes the Holy Spirit. He says here in verse one, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive this spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or another way of putting that, he's being sarcastic. He says, uh, you know, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made complete through your mere human power? Legalism marginalizes the Holy Spirit. It compartmentalizes the gospel by stressing works over grace and the fruit that's produced from it is completely false. It's illegitimate. What begins to develop in a Christian's life who comes back under a legalistic mindset is what develops is a transactional relationship with God an entitlement mindset. In other words, I do for God and I get from God. I perform, I get. I'm good, I should be blessed. This transactional relationship, a a, a posture of arrogance is what develops and a heart that's filled with condemnation and judgmentalism for others that do not agree with us. And what it essentially does is it, it magnifies our self over the work of Jesus Christ. At his core, a legalist believes that Jesus gets us into the game. But then, to win the game, it depends on me and some help from Jesus. That's what happens with legalism. And Paul says, this is foolish 
Because the minute you go down this road towards your Christian life, it puts you back under the curse of works righteousness, which never brings spiritual life. It never leads to redemption. It just leads to condemnation. So Paul begins this passage and he starts with this curse, this foolishness of legalism. And then he takes us to the wisdom and the blessing of living by faith. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. That, that little word by in this passage, right? Um, it, it's an important word. Uh, it, it has incredible significance. But we live by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Tim Keller suggests that every one of us ought to ask an important question. What do I live by? Because that's what this passage is hitting at. He writes this, he says, to live by something means to rely on it for our happiness and fulfillment. Whatever we live by is essentially the bottom line of our lives. What gives us meaning, confidence, and definition. It is very illuminating to ask, what do I live by? What is my life based on? What, if I lost it, would make me feel as if I had no life left? These are all questions that lay bare the foundation of your life. See, Keller is, is, is touching on an important truth. That little word by reveals something. What we live by reveals who or what we worship. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we live by? I think for a lot of us, the what we live by resembles a game that some of you may have played in the past. How many of you are familiar with the game roulette? Raise your hand, roulette. Okay, how many of you just don't want to admit you're familiar with the game roulette? Okay, no, no. <laughs> okay. All right, you know what roulette is, and children, in case you don't know what roulette is, it is a game that is in oftentimes in institutions of the financially challenged. And um, it's a wheel that spins, right? It spins, and, and there's numbers on them, and they'll be like red and black, and they're numbered, I don't know, uh, um, you know Bob, what are those numbers again? No, I'm teasing, uh, right? <laughs> you know, they may be numbered one to 25 or whatever, black and red, and what you do is you get these chips, which represent money. And you're, you're, you are betting that when they roll the ball around this little track and it does it and it finishes rolling, it's gonna drop down into the slot where you put your money. And so some people will take all of their chips all of them, and every, every chip represents a certain amount of money. And um, the cheapskates, it represents a dollar and a really foolish, maybe a hundred dollars per chip, right? And they put their chips maybe on, uh, what's your favorite number? Give me a number. Two, okay, and what's your favorite color, red or black? Red. red, okay, so they take all their chips. Parents, I am so sorry that I just realized I'm teaching your children how to play roulette this morning, <laughs> but I'm trying to make this illustration pertinent to them. <laughs> 
And now I'm in too deep. I got to finish, right? <laughs> all right, so they put all their chips on two red. Now, some people are maybe a little, you know, a little slicker. And what they'll do is, what do they do? They put maybe some chips on two red, and maybe they'll put some on seven black, and some on 13, and some on 18, all these different, and they're, they're, they're diversifying their chips. Now, you may be asking, what on earth does a casino game have to do with this and legalism? Because this is exactly what we do with our lives, what we live by, right? If you think of all of our life as just a stack of worship chips, because all of life is, is worship, the Bible teaches us. And, and here's what we will often do as, as Christians. Some of us, we will put all of our worship chips on our children. Or we will put all of our worship chips on our career. Or put them all on a ministry in our church. And what we're doing is we're living nice because we're, we're trusting in those things, those chips, that thing, whatever it is, to provide us with significance and identity and a sense of a purpose and importance, comfort, right? Now, now, some of us, we will do that. And what happens is when the ball doesn't hit on that thing and we, we lose it all, it sends us into a tailspin. This is why people oftentimes get deep depression, maybe even commit suicide because they put all their chips, all that they live by is on that thing right there. But most of us aren't that foolish. What do we do? We diversify our worship chips, don't we? We put some of our chips on our children, but we put some of our chips on our spouse. We put some of our chips on our friendships. We put some of our chips on our career. Some of us right now are putting some of our chips on Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Uh-oh, right? And we're putting our chips on all these, and we're diversifying, anticipating that, that that will ultimately bring us what we're looking for. And Paul says, this is foolish. We do this thinking that this is what's going to bring us happiness and security and meaning and, and satisfaction and comfort, and that we are to use his words in verse 3, that we are going to complete ourselves through human works, works righteousness, and it's just foolishness. At its essence, the placement of chips in this way is nothing more than self-effort, and it reveals who or what we're actually worshiping. When we put our chips on anything other than Jesus, we are placing ourselves under the curse of legalism. Whatever it may be. And most of us, as I look across this room, you're believers, you're mature and fairly mature in Christ, the things that we will put our chips on are good things but we're making them into ultimate things. And it's a form of legalism and works righteousness. For some of you, if you're doing this in order to earn God's favor so that one day when you die, you'll be received to him in heaven 
understand what you're actually receiving is condemnation. You're putting yourself back under a standard that is impossible to fulfill. It's the standard of perfect, absolutely perfect obedience, and none of us can ever do that. For the Christian, when we revert back to this cycle of legalism, what we do is we put ourselves into a situation where we will continually experience defeat, sin, the bondage of sin. We'll be tempted to put some of our chips on maybe a substance or relationship to give us, and and then we have an addiction that develops and we're in bondage now, we're enslaved to sin. And that creates anxiety in our hearts and depression and it just leads us in a downward spiral of frustration and a life that we don't want. Or maybe we put a mask on and we just become a, a really great pretender and hypocrisy defines us. We can become more judgmental And the reason why we become more judgmental is we're in this massive effort to convince ourselves that we're okay. This is what happens when we live by something or someone other than Jesus Christ. This is why by faith is so important. We don't have to live like this. We heard the story a few moments ago. Christy told us the story of Abraham. Uh, Abraham believed God. We see in this passage in Galatians 3 where Abraham, just the verse before, I think verse 7, 8, he refers to Abraham. Abraham believed God. He lived by faith and this kind of this righteousness. We don't have to come under the, the sway of legalism, we can live by faith. We can believe Christ. And listen, there's a, there's a difference, and I want you to hear this very carefully. You can believe in Christ and not be believing Christ. Okay? You can believe in God and not believe God. But you can't believe God and not believe in God. You can't believe Christ and not believe in Christ. But you can believe in Christ and not believe Christ. Do you see the difference there? If you don't, write it down and think about it. It'll come to you. This is important for us to see. I mean, another way of putting it, listen, the devils believe in Christ, but they don't believe Christ. You understand? The devils believe in God, but they don't believe in God. And so Jesus comes to us and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am your life. Now, do you believe Christ or do you simply believe in Christ? Believing Christ is living by faith. And that's why Abraham was blessed. He believed God. He didn't just believe in God and that God existed. He believed God, his promises. I am going to make you great name great. I am going to give you an inheritance. This is going to come through your son, Isaac. He didn't know how it was going to work, but he believed God. That's living by faith. Not just some nebulous, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Christian doctrine. I believe in what the Bible says. There's a difference between believing in it and living by it. There's a difference of giving intellectual assent and believing Christ. One is faith. 
The other is religious activity. One leads to life, the other leads to condemnation. Children, young people, you've been raised in your parents' homes from a young age, you've been told the stories of Jesus. Here's my question for you. Do you believe in Christ or do you believe Christ? It's the most important question you can answer. Keller says, what are you living by? Who are you living by? Church, do we live by Christ? Or are we simply living in our doctrine about Christ? Big differences here. One is a life by faith, one is not. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, verse 13 says, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The curse is removed from us by Jesus who became a curse for us. Think about it, church. Jesus received the curse that we all earned because of our sin so that we in turn might receive the blessings that he earned. He received the curse that we earned so that we could receive the blessings that he earned. In the eyes of God, Jesus became sin so that in the eyes of God, we can become righteous and be seen as righteous by faith alone. soul is by faith alone, grace alone, it all happens because of God. In Christ alone, we receive this ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing mentioned in this passage is not only are we Abraham's now heirs, like Abraham, we receive the ultimate gift, not just eternal life, we receive the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the person of the Holy Spirit living within us right now, giving us all spiritual blessings, all spiritual power, so that we don't have to enter back under the curse of the law. Is this your experience? Are you living by faith? What, who, Church, are you living by? It reveals who we're worshiping. Father, may we be a church. May the people here, may the children who, who have sat at their parents' feet and have sat in discipleship, who've heard the truth of the gospel, may the truth become reality as they trust Christ and believe Christ. Lord, make us a church that is characterized by this vibrant union with you, Lord Jesus. May our life be drawn from you. May, may our church reflect the, the beautiful aroma of the gospel and of who you are. Like you, Lord Jesus, may we attract those who are in desperate need of salvation. May we have that humility and love of spirit and loving spirit that you had for the, for the sinner, for the one who is in need. May there be no hint of spiritual pride and arrogance. 
Lord, may we be that church that recognizes we are saved by your grace. And if it were not for your grace, we would have no hope at all. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.